Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. In this episode, I sit down with Lloyd Lobo of Boast Capital. Him and his team focus on tax programs that can recoup your company hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars from the government. You've likely heard about them, their R&D and SRED tax credit programs. That said, it's very easy to find yourself down a rabbit hole of complexity and a time-wasting exercise when applying for or addressing the audit questions that can come from these programs. For this reason, Lloyd and I sat down to dig into these programs and see what they're all about and see how you can apply them to your business. I can tell you firsthand that I've seen these credits add valuable non-dilutive capital to companies, but also that they can be a complete waste of time for others. If you've ever wondered about tax credits and how they work, how to best approach getting them, and even if you should bother, this will be a helpful interview for you. On the line, I have Lloyd Lobo of Boast Capital, as well as Attraction Conference. Lloyd, thanks a lot for making the time, uh, especially being on vacation in Hawaii. This is great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for reaching out and um, excited to get into it. So it's it's an interesting, uh, well, it's interesting work you guys are doing with Boast, um, as well as Traction Conference. But what I'd like to do is start off with a bit of a uh, uh, an elevator pitch on yourself. What's uh, What's your background and what brings you into the work you're doing now? Yeah, definitely. So I'm a software engineer by education. I, uh, although I live in San Francisco, but I grew up in the Toronto, greater, greater Toronto area. Um, and I studied software engineering in Ontario, which is where I met my co-founder, Alex Popa. And um, in 2005 or so, I moved to the U.S., worked in product and, uh, and growth at a number of venture-backed companies. And um, around the, the 2011 timeframe, uh, my co-founder Alex had worked in engineering at Johnson and Johnson, did a startup, and then um, ended up studying accounting and and was working at KPMG on their shred team. And around 2011, late 2011, he said, "Hey man, uh, the processes in the accounting firms and how shred is handled today is very manual, and it is uh, very labor intensive, and it's usually accountants talking to a company CTO to ask them." tell me what you did last year. And these people usually come in at the end of the year and, and spend a lot of time um, to, uh, to spend a lot of time uh, with the company CTO taking up their resources. And he's like, there has to be a better way uh, to streamline the processes. And, uh, and that's how Boast was born. And, uh, you know, me and Alex have been best friends for a very, very long time. We've known each other for, geez, almost 20 years now. Um, and so it was the perfect thing. I, uh, as soon as he told me, I pulled around in the U.S. to see if there was a similar program in the U.S., which there were, with similar challenges, and we started the company. Alex was in Calgary at the time. Um, His wife was articling uh, at a law firm, and I was in San Francisco. So it's funny. I spent the first year, first full year of the company, shuttling back and forth between San Francisco and Calgary, and um, almost everyone in the Calgary ecosystem thinks I am from Calgary. In fact, during that time, 
I also ended up writing a column for the Calgary Herald called Star. I just, just for the record, I'm one of those. <laughs> I got yeah. you were from Calgary. Right, 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 right. So, so I was writing a column for the Calgary Herald. Uh, I w- we were on the board of the uh, startup Calgary, a small organization, and we helped uh, uh, helped uh, increase the scale of it. Um, and then it was acquired by the Calgary Economic Development. But a lot of the programs Calgary did in the early years, like Startup Weekend, uh, Startup Grind, were initiatives that we had started. The key thing there was, you know, we were two co-founders um, in a small nascent startup community. Like, how do we, how do we sort of learn from each other, and how do we bring learnings as as two bootstrapped or self-funded founders and we felt the best way to learn it learn is to create an environment where other founders can connect with each other and that's that's why we started doing what we're doing uh, obviously that that whole model is super successful it's a thriving ecosystem in san francisco so you know as a part of our community give back we said hey if we help enough people in the community get to where they want to go as entrepreneurs and be a part of their journey the business will come, right? And so that we took that give first approach. And over the years, we've been doubling our growth and, you know, customers just come to us. Hmm. Um, and that, that's the thing. I'll, I'll get into the uh, elevator pitch of, of Boast, but the key thing here was like, uh, you know, when you start a company, you're lonely, you're alone on this journey. There are hundreds of entrepreneurs like us. And I think the best way to learn is from each other. And, uh, and so we've continued to build that community. Um, and now it's a thriving community of 20,000 plus entrepreneurs around North America under the traction banner. And so we do traction conference in Vancouver and, um, and all the profits from traction conference get uh, donated to a nonprofit, uh, and our partner launch Academy. And then we do, um, regular CEO summits, uh, in different cities. So we do two in Vancouver, two in Toronto, uh, two in San Francisco, one in Seattle, and it's almost uh, like one or two a quarter uh, where founders come together in a roundtable format over dinner, drinks, yada, yada, and, uh, and, and, and discuss their pains and their troubles, their business goals. Like, and it could be related to getting sales, getting customers, um, getting um, scaling the team, hiring, all aspects of scaling a business. And I think that founder-to-founder learning uh, has helped us grow significantly over the years as, as self-funded founders without taking VC money. So that, that was, uh, that's been a huge part, I think, of our growth. And in fact, I'm going to Toronto next week. We're running the growth conference in Toronto and a CEO dinner. And then we've partnered with InVentures in Calgary uh, to do a track at InVentures as well as do a CEO uh, dinner at InVentures in a similar format, CEOs and CXOs learning from each other. So anyone listening to this podcast, we have a ton of conference tickets to InVentures on uh, June 5th to 7th in Calgary at the TELUS Convention Center, and I can make that available after. Absolutely. We'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. Definitely. So getting getting into the pitch of uh, Boast, why us? Um, you know, like I said, R&D tax. Well, how about, let's, let's talk about, I, I mean, as I mentioned before, I think Boast has got an outstanding brand. And to your point, you built it around community and that giving back. I've always seen the work you do around tax credits uh, as it, it's outstanding compared to the other service providers. But what are these tax credits? How are they part of a larger financing strategy? What do CEOs and management teams need to know about them? 
Yeah, definitely. You know, it's, it's perfect for me to contrast on both sides, right? Like US and Canada as well, because, because we do help companies with R&D tax payers on both sides of the border. But, you know, as you're a company and you're wanting to grow, capital is a key resource. Uh, and the best way to get capital, of course, is from your customers. But, um, you know, not always you have that opportunity in the earlier stages where you can be entirely customer funded or self-funded. And so you need capital. And, and as you go to look out for capital, there's various sources. You can go to angel investors. You can go to venture capitalists. And that's going to dilute yourself a little bit. Um, and it could dilute yourself maybe north of 50%, depending on how much you take over the years. And not everyone can be a venture backable company because as a venture back company, there are some metrics that you need to display, uh, some aggressive growth goals, right? So that whole process is very time consuming. And imagine you're a young company and you're like, okay, I need to just focus on growing my business, but I need capital now. Do I do the angel VC run? Do I do like the bank run? And the bank may not may or may not lend you money because you're still earlier stage and you don't have historical financials. And then there's this beautiful thing in Canada called government grants where you can literally fund about 60% of your R&D. And, and so in Canada, the landscape is a few programs. There's the R&D tax credit program, SRNED, Scientific Research and Experimental Development. It's been around since the 80s, and it's to encourage innovation in Canada. And the government, to my understanding, gives over $4 billion to 25,000 plus companies every year um, for developing new or improving existing technologies, products, or processes. It doesn't have to be groundbreaking. It doesn't have to change the world. What matters is uh, you're advancing your company's knowledge base and you're overcoming technological challenges that you couldn't resolve with solutions in the public domain. So, so, like, so that's, that's somewhere where I think a lot of us get tripped up on. What, is, what defines or what's the parameters of that technological challenge that the government recognizes as uh, or is, is willing to pay for or give you a credit for? Yeah, so the way I view it is, say you're, you're building software, right? And this software needs to integrate with a third-party system. Um, and let's say this third-party system has no documentation, no API. It says it's, you're integrating with a manufacturing system that's gone bankrupt. There's no documentation there. Now you need to make the two systems talk, um, but there is no documentation, there's no protocol, and you need to write that communication protocol from scratch. Now you need that you need your system to communicate with that manufacturing system at 100%, because if you don't, it's gonna screw up the production line, they're gonna lose productivity. So anywhere where you see a technological uncertainty where there's no publicly available answer or solution, like no open API, no documentation, no open code, and you need to come up with your own solution and work through an iterative process to get to the end outcome, that's where uh, there is shred eligible activities. On the, on the high end, you could be working with, you could be, you could be a company developing AI solutions for let's say a banking agent. And this banking agent now, I don't know if, you, if you've looked at banks or like call any customer support line, they'll usually route you a hundred times, a uh, hundred is an exaggeration, but several times. Each person will ask the same questions over and over again. 
But let's say you're now building technology to change that whereby um, your system is parsing through voice, video, text, and different data sources and providing real-time insight to the end user. So when you call as a, as, a, as a customer of a bank or any service, they immediately they recognize who it is, what they want, uh, and what value to provide. Now, the, the, it may seem easy from the description, but on the back end, there's a lot of technological challenges because anytime you're trying to apply machine learning to a voice, video, and text and parse those three uh, types of data, there's all kinds of uncertainties and, and you don't want to pull out the wrong inferences. So really on the high end, it could be complex robotics. It could be complex pharmaceutical formulations. It could be AI, deep learning. On the low end, it could be integrations with third-party systems where there's no way for the two to talk. But essentially, if you're building technology and you're facing challenges which stops you dead in your tracks and you need to figure out how can I make this move forward, that's when you have uh, some nugget of shred eligibility to investigate. Because and you're, what I've heard from that is that it, it says, and, and what I'm understanding from you, is it's if when you run into trial and error and you're able to document that, that, that helps your claim. Am I, am I on, on base there or am I off? You're, you're, not, you're on base, but not entirely, right? So I wouldn't use the word trial and error because trial and error almost is like not systematic. I didn't think through this. I like threw spaghetti in the wall. The, the real term there is systematic uh, investigation or an experimental process where you're saying, okay, I faced this challenge. Um, I need to get to why. Um, now, what I'm going to do is think through a few hypotheses of how to get there from like, X to Y, and uh, I'm going to try them all. And then if they work, great. If not, then my hypothesis have failed. And like so work through an iterative process. So it's more or less the same thing. But uh, to me, a trial and error is like throwing spaghetti in the wall and like a systematic uh, experimental approach is you're thinking through each uh, experiment. Okay. And with that, that systematic approach, are you looking what what is the the tax credits applied to is it the the time that went into the failed approach or is it the time that's gone into the entire project that's been scoped out in a systematic way so it's it's mostly time that's spent on the entire project uh, that qualifies for the r and d right uh, so essentially what goes into it is let's dive into what you can claim you can claim salaries you can claim subcontractors and if you're a hardware company or a non-software company that's using materials, you can claim materials that were consumed or transformed, usually like things used for prototyping, or if you're manufacturing that test runs of scrap and so on, right? So you can claim those. Now, what you're looking at is, one is direct development, and then the other is supporting activities like QA, texting, technical requirements, gathering, technical analysis, and so on. So once you have this issue, anything that's sort of, um, impacting that uh, from your labor standpoint can be claimed. So if that is you need a project manager's time to scope it out from a technical analysis perspective, you need a QA person to test it, uh, those all can be claimed in addition to direct uh, engineering and development. Okay. And what do you have any examples of like, what kind of money is available? And, and when I say that, I mean, it's, it's how much, what percentage uh, could be available to, to companies as they grow? 
Yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll speak on Canada and then if needed, we can, we can dive into the U.S. But uh, there's two categories here for the Canadian R&D tax credit or the scientific research and experimental development shred. Um, one is a Canadian-controlled private corporation. And this is where um, your Canadian-controlled uh, entity, meaning a Canadian resident or residents control or have a majority control of the entity, and um, it's private, it's not public, it's not foreign-owned. And the other is a non-CCPC. This could be a foreign-owned or a publicly-owned corporation. So there is a distinction there. So let's call the Canadian-controlled private corporation a CCPC and, and the other a non-CCPC. So CCPCs um, can get about 64% of their R&D spend as a cash back, about 32% of contractors, and then about 42% of materials. And materials meaning not materials used in commercial production, but materials either discarded, scrapped, or transformed or used in prototyping. I'll break these numbers down a little bit, but what's behind these numbers is for each dollar you spend on R&D eligible, shred eligible salaries, you get 55 cents uh, as proxy overhead to account for overhead. So once you factor all of that in, put in the federal percentages, the provincial percentages, more or less works out to in the 64% range on R&D salaries. These are T4 salaries. Um, works out to about 32% in contractors and about 42% on materials for CCPCs. The beauty of this for Canadian-controlled private corporations is you get this as a refund check from the CRA. Now, if you're a non-refundable, if you're a non-CCPC, meaning a foreign-owned entity or um, a foreign-owned entity or sort of a public corporation, then what you get back is 36% on salaries, 18% on contractors, and 24% on materials. This is not a cashback. From federal, it's mostly um, a tax credit to offset income taxes, and you can carry it back three years or carry it forward indefinitely. Now, some provinces have um, a provincial amount that might be refundable. Um, and, and, and so, but that's... And that's the, for public companies? That's, that's for non-CCPCs, yeah. Okay. The, the provincial amount is refundable uh, in Ontario and Alberta and, and a few others. But uh, yeah, but those amounts are very small, right? In that 8% or so range, but uh, 8 to 10% range, depending on the province. And uh, so largely the non-CCPC rates are non-refundable, largely. And then the CCPC ones are refundable. But okay. if you're profitable non-CCPC, then of course you can offset income taxes. If you're not, then you can carry it forward if you plan to do uh, run revenues and grow in Canada. A lot of the sort of non-CCPCs or many of the non-CCPCs who are sort of foreign-owned entities just doing an R&D center in Canada, um, for them, the unfortunate thing is if they're not running their revenues through Canada, then the chances of them being immensely profitable are very low, right? Them being having huge tax liability in Canada are low. So chances of them using the bulk of those credits are also lower versus, say, a public company or a Canadian entity that's a non-CCPC via a public vehicle um, then you know, they're going to post profits and that's probably going to grow. That's their goal. And so they could offset uh, income taxes down the road. I understand what you're saying there. And, and when we're talking percentages, it, I think there's no doubt that it can add up and it can add up quick. 
on both sides of the equation from being a CCPC2 uh, to a non-CCPC. So, uh, I mean, those numbers can be big, but when you, when you say systematic approach, one of the things that we've run into the past was we didn't approach our tax credit program within our companies on a systematic way. And ultimately, it was just a big waste of time. There's a couple of things. One, understanding you have to be systematic in how you do it is, is crucially important, but that can take a lot of time. And as a, well, as a pitch for Boast, uh, you are taking a more software-driven, AI-driven approach now. Can you talk about that? And how, how, if I was a CEO, how could I maximize the benefit of working with you? Definitely. So the one thing I'll share based on, uh, based on data that I have, right? One of the biggest reasons why claims get denied in the CRA audits and you know, CRA audits at different levels, they could do a first time claim and advisory service where they just give you advice on how to do things better for the future. They could do a financial audit. They could do um, a technical audit. They could do a full audit. They could do a desktop review where they just review it and then approve or ask for more information. And, and the number one reason why claims get denied or reduced in audits is because there is no documentation. There's no proof showing there was systematic process in play uh, and the technological uncertainties uh, couldn't be solved by information in the public domain. And the only way to get around that is to be proactive with your shared claim. Right? And this is, this is where, uh, where we help is when we started the company, our first approach was, hey, the typical uh, consulting firms, they hire accountants to do this. What if we hire engineers? Engineers can easily analyze a company's project management data and then speak with their CTOs and quickly flush out what qualifies and what doesn't. And we've seen huge success in our audit rates being significantly lower than industry and, and huge success is there. Then the next step was, well, what do these... Uh, our technical PMs or uh, our shred leads do on a day-to-day basis. And they're analyzing data. They're talking to uh, a company CTO and so on uh, proactively through the year. How do we make this better? And so a few years ago, we started building technology. And so our, our big pitch is Boast can automate and increase your shred claims by combining proprietary software with smart engineers and CPAs. So you're getting more money and more refunds for less time invested on, from your team uh, and less fees, right? Uh, the biggest challenge most companies have is like they want this money, but they don't want to spend all their time. If you're spending all your time as a company CTO and your dev team, um, then that's taking away from your company's priorities. It's a rabbit hole. I mean, you can go down there and, and find out that there's nothing there for you. Exactly, right? And then, and then the other piece of it is uh, if you're a venture-backed company, your board meetings don't center around shred. They care center on growth and product features rolled out and, and customer retention as it should be and, 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 and so on and revenue growth. So if you, if you go and say, hey, my dev team spent like last quarter compiling together the shred claim, it's, it's just going to be a weird conversation. And I've, I've been on the other side. And so by combining the software approach and smart engineers who can easily understand the tech a company is building, we're able to streamline that shred claim process. So the software we build connects with various technical 
project management systems and financial systems and pulls that data in real time. And then uh, we're building technology to automate the what work qualifies and what doesn't, extrapolate time tracking from it, and so on. So this data comes in proactively real time through the year. Our, uh, our technical PMs and shred leads analyze it. So we're not sitting at year end and looking back and saying, oh, what work qualified? Uh, let's try to find it and let's go through this uh, wild goose chase exercise. And on the on the other beauty, uh, the other beauty of this is, say we get a client that comes at year end, uh, we have the opportunity now to integrate with them and suck all their data in for the past year. And so now, like there's there's two situations here. You start on Jan one, and let's say your fiscal year end is December, so you need to file by June, which is your statutory filing deadline. If you're proactive. Yes, our software is collecting the data proactively. We're reviewing it proactively. But let's say you're working with another firm that comes at the end of the year or you sign them just at the end of the year. Then they're going to have this long goose chase of an exercise. And imagine all that work that you should have done over a year is condensed into a couple of weeks. It makes it very, very difficult. Now we have this opportunity to come in, suck the past year's data and segregate it and, and make life easy. So we're getting these claims done in a significantly lower burden our clients' resources and getting them more money. And that is that is the mission here is how can you use technology to streamline a process that was traditionally manual and then and use those learnings and apply machine learning to it to make it smarter and smarter in year two, year three, year four, year five. Uh, and that's that's the goal. For for companies looking to to go down this path and, and to access these tax credits and understanding that there's a lot of work there. Are there providers other than yourselves who have like best niches? They've really carved out good niches where they know an industry better than anybody else. I mean, I understand Boast is, I mean, you've got a great footprint in the, in the early stage uh, startup technology space, but are there other areas where maybe you're not as strong or how does the, how does the uh, competitive field look and what should uh, a CEO look for when looking to engage uh, a tax credit firm? Yeah, definitely. And I'll, I'll give you sort of a, maybe a longish answer, but you know, we don't only work in the early stage tech. We have clients ranging from the seed stage to all the way to IPO, right? And um, because we also do R&D credits in the US and the US R&D credit is significantly smaller than Canadian, it forces us to work with very large venture-backed companies. Uh, and we've got clients in pharmaceutical and biotech and agriculture, um, in software and hardware, and so all over the gamut. I think the key thing is when you're looking for a provider, you need to understand their process, right? You know, uh, as a founder, you need this money, right? And um, you need also to do an analysis of how much time it's going to cost you, right? So there's a few things we see over and over. You have the option to do it yourself. You have the option to do it with a consulting firm, or you have the option to do it with someone like us with a software-driven approach. Now, as a founder, you need to analyze one, what is somebody's process involved? If their process in, is, I'm going to come in at the end of the year and like go through this exercise and ask you all these questions, then that's one flag. The other flag is if they say, uh, do all the write-ups, you identify for me what qualifies. Well, then why do you need a consulting firm? Why do you need someone else to help you out with it? You may as well do it yourself. So I think the key thing here is, Who's going to do the tech? Who's going to identify what qualifies and what doesn't? Who's going to write up the reports and carry through all the burden? And who's going to help 
defend that in audits and back it up with putting together the whole package. Uh, and the last piece is how proactive are they? Because it's my fundamental belief that if I'm coming back at the end of the year or end of two years, it's very hard for people to remember, especially a company, a technology companies, um, a CTO, or you know, we work with pharma companies. They're more, they're better documented. But in general, if your company is um, head of innovation and technology, it's hard for you to remember. Right? And so we've seen these three buckets where, one, you're working with somebody who doesn't understand the program. Say they understand the program, but they don't understand the technology you're building. And then they got to do all this manual work. And that coupled with coming at year end, it's a huge exercise. Uh, the first one is what I, uh, the other bucket is companies doing it themselves. What I find is when people doing them, uh, do it themselves, they've usually burdened someone on the tech team to do this. And that person, if, if it's a fast-growing company, that person's priority is pushing out features and product uh, to grow the business, as it should. So what we find is people who do it internally typically don't claim everything they should. They claim the most obvious stuff, they, and they leave a lot of money on the table. So those are the two buckets. Is like, do it yourself, uh, do it with an accounting consulting firm, or do it with someone like us. Um, and you know, if you're really great at it, you have a great documentation system in place where you're tracking everything proactively through the year, uh, and your year-end approach is just as much as, hey, let's just compile everything and put it together and do the write-ups. If you're on top of it, great, fantastic. Save yourself the hassle, do it yourself. Um, but if you're not, then leveraging someone to support in a proactive way throughout the year would be helpful. The key thing is, how much money could I get? How much time? Uh, it's going to take from me and what is the risk of an audit because it's not compiled proactively versus scrambled together at here. I think those are the key things because if you're going to get a lot of money, but it's going to take you all your time and you have the chance of losing it all in an audit, then why even do it? I gotcha. Now, one final question to wrap this up because I really want to get into your work with traction. But when, when uh, engaging a firm, what kind of fees? What are the ballparks or what's that spectrum of fee that should be uh, charged for their work? So I think the key is value for money, right? And um, what we typically find is uh, we work on a scaling scale and we take a percentage of the claim, typically can be as low as 5% and we get into fixed fees and can be upwards of like 15%. Um, and that's, uh, that's what we see, right? And, and the key thing is not so much on a uh, tier by tier or dollar by dollar, but like, what is your effective rate? How much are you paying? Is it fair? And would it, would I be able to get that same amount if I did it myself? Um, and if I did it myself, how much more time am I spending for my internal uh, dollars? If it's costing you one whole man hour, and and they're conservative because that's not their, they've not done hundreds of claims before, so they're gonna claim less and you're costing one person. So if you look at it from that perspective, then you can come up with a uh, with a fee structure with your provider that makes sense for you. Excellent. Well, well, thanks for that. I mean, it's uh, yeah, I definitely think that it's a world that's perhaps underutilized or misunderstood. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, and uh, and and you know, it's, it's complicated, um, and uh, there's a lot of people doing it. And uh, the key thing is, how do you innovate to constantly? improve the process, streamline it, so people are spending less and less time and focusing on their business. And that is our number one uh, approach and, and goal. Uh, in fact, every client of ours that's raised venture dollars, 
whether it's in software or pharma or any tech company that's growing really fast, their number one directive is, please do not chew up my team's time because if they have to spend weeks of their time on this, then the money is not meaningful to us because we have millions and tens of millions in the bank. Yeah, absolutely. Our priorities are against the milestone for which I raise money, not shred or US R&D tax. Absolutely. I, I hear you on that. It's, it, there is a balance there. Um, now, what, what I was uh, hoping to do now is, is switch gears and talk about uh, Traction Conference. Uh, and the reason why I want to do that is because Traction, as I understand, is, is a bringing together of some, some outstanding minds discussing cutting-edge tactics, strategies, and, and uh, go-to-markets, uh, you know, anything in and around sales and marketing and building an outstanding product uh, to, and scaling companies quick. I mean, all of these things, in my opinion, are very applicable to the world of finance as well. It just happens when you're doing sales and marketing for a product, it's very similar to what you need to do to engage investors. So I'd love to hear about Traction Conference, how companies are using it, uh, some of the successes there, and then maybe we can drive into some of the, the cutting-edge strategies you're seeing companies uh, deploy these days and, and uh, what you're learning from having co-founded that. Yeah, definitely. So Traction is a conference uh, hosted by Boast and uh, in partnership with uh, our friends at Launch Academy, which is an incubator, nonprofit incubator out of uh, Vancouver. And we started in 2014. Prior to that, uh, we were doing a lot of activity in the startup community. And, and, and the reason for that was as, as two founders, self-funded, um, and don't have um, advisors uh, from large venture back, uh, large venture capital firms and so on, like, hey, let's build our own community. And the only way to do that and learn is to, to help other people. And so we started doing meetups and, and smaller events around Calgary, like things like Startup Weekend and Startup Grind and, and other meetups through the year. And eventually that transformed into traction, which we, the first edition of it was in Banff and we had Red Hat and VMware CEOs, Twilio CEOs. I mean, Red Hat was is one of the largest software acquisitions. And we were two people at the time and we didn't realize that putting on that conference presented by Boast was a huge brand builder for us. But we continued to do that. And then stemming from that, we started doing um, all, every other month CEO summits in different cities wherever we do business with the same idea that bring together smart people. Um, and this could be smart founders from a company that's IPO to a smart founder that's just starting up. But if they're selling to similar markets, we team them up to have roundtable discussions where you know there's no press, there's nobody, it's founder to founder, and they can share the idea. So I could, uh, you know, I've learned a ton myself from building this community, things like uh, building out our inside sales team or building out our go-to-market process or our strategies to scale beyond just R&D tax, new markets, so on, right? There's so much you can learn just by talking to other people who've done it. And we're like, how do we scale this uh, and and bring value to the community where we do business? And and that's been our number one goal is, um, you know, if you look at the values, core values of both, it is treat your colleagues right because if you treat them well, um, they will treat your customers well and they will behave well in the community and, and support the community. So that was, that was number one. Number two is do right by, by your customers because they are your business. And third thing is uh, support the community wherever you do business. Right? So those three C's are, are, are key. 
And that stayed with us from two people to now we're almost 30 people. And we literally more than doubled our team since last year. Uh, but those values stay. And so we do traction in Vancouver. We're helping out with adventures um, in June. And then we're doing the growth conference uh, in Toronto and, and then uh, Saster in, in San Francisco we help out with. So the key there is literally there's different areas of business growth. You need to finance you need to build a team. You need to maintain culture as you grow fast. You need to build a sales team. You need to be a marketing team. There's so many facets of growth and traction uh, that you know it, you can read, but you can also uh, interact with other people who've done it. And I feel the best way to learn for me is interact with other people, sort of unofficial advisors. And that's why we started uh, Traction, and it's done really well now. It's the seventh time running it. And uh, it's been top-rated conference, and it's a two-day event. Um, uh, the main stage, which is second day, is rapid-fire keynotes, fireside chats with the top CEOs who've either gone public or built billion-dollar companies. Well, there's no doubt you've got a, a mega lineup. Some of the biggest names going. Yeah, and every, every year it's been it's been like that. We don't pay any of the speakers, and then the key belief here is all the speakers truly want to give back and support community. So that's the main stage, and in sort of Rapid fire, 20, 30 minutes, tell me like how you got from X to Y. Like last year, Sengrid CEO talked about how he maintained culture while taking public and then shortly thereafter was acquired by, uh, by Twilio for a few billion. We've had Twilio's CEO speak about uh, you know, his frustrations as a founder previous to starting Twilio and how having conviction for your customer will help you build a long-term company. And thing, and many many areas, things like that, right? Like how to raise how to raise capital, and what's the right stage for the right type of funding, uh, and where you need to be at, and so on. And then day one of the conference, there's multiple tracks which are more deep dive. There's a CEO summit which we do on the mountain, Grouse Mountain, where people are interacting with each other. Um, first half is uh, is roundtable discussions over lunch, and then people break into groups and hike, bike, uh, axe throw, and different activities. And they really get to know each other. Um, what, what have you learned most from putting this together? I mean, I, it's an interesting seat to be in, bringing all these uh, leading minds together. But what have you learned most from doing this? I think the thing I've learned the most, and I think it's been most valuable for me, is uh, there's, there's nothing that uh, can replace human one-to-one in-person connections. Right? Well, we may... Most of our clients, uh, we deliver service online um, and, and over phones, I call that online. But there's nothing that replaces human one-to-one connection. And just looking at people that they've learned something or they've made a connection uh, to something because of, of this community we built is probably the most satisfying thing for me as an entrepreneur. And I'm glad we're able to do it because of both. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a reality. I mean, just the other day, I had uh, one of the conference speakers uh, from 2015 reach out to me, thanking me, saying he attended the conference and he was able to meet a large venture capital firm uh, and he's now a partner there, right? Those kinds of things. People well, that's, that's a nice email to receive. Yeah, and then he invited me over to their office, giant office in San Francisco uh, for lunch and it's one of the largest funds out there. So. Things like that make me really happy when they say, you know what, I was able to walk away with one piece of value because of something you did. And I think, I think that is the key thing um, of all of this, right? Of, of, of building a company, building a business, essentially 
it takes a community, it takes a village, it, it takes a nation to build a company. And, uh, and if we can be a part of people's success, um, I think it, the karma comes back to us and we all grow. And also just learning from people's successes and failures helps us uh, go on a good path or avoid bad paths. I think you make a really good point there that we, I don't think enough management teams and CEOs put, uh, uh, they don't put enough weight on the fact that it's a village who helps build these companies. And Brady Fletcher, when I interviewed him, he said the exact same thing for public companies. You need partners, you need support, you need advisors, whether they be formal or informal, it takes a village to build a company. And so the work you're doing here, I can see how that plays such a, a vital part and the one-on-one and how important that can be. I, I would, you know, the one thing I want to add here is one of the best ways I've found for my personal growth and business growth and, and us as a company is going and helping people uninitiated in the business community. So, you know, I've met some of the best friends I, I know and best advisors I know by just saying, hey, is there anything I could help you with? And not just asking, but being very proactive about it and saying, hey, I see you're doing this. I have skill sets that can help you um, accelerate a portion of that. Can I help you? And they're like, great, run with it. And then you provide that value. And now they're your advisor for life. And I've done that. We've done that multiple times over in different uh, cities without any financial outcome. But what it pays back is like in, <laughs> in multiples in karma. I feel like that's becoming a, the new age rule. It's, it's, you know, do unto others how you want it done to yourself. But I mean, now it's, it's go and give and then give more. And it's going to come back to you in, in multiples. Uh, I, I find that that is, uh, I mean, it's huge. It's really great advice. And it, it seems to be coming the, the way to do things. But don't be like contrived about it, right? So we've been doing it since, like I've been doing it all my career um, from, from, from university times. And like, you know, if you're, if you're deliberate about it and it's a business strategy, that's when it'll fail. Just do it and don't expect a return because that's how you are culturally or, or, or that's how uh, you get joy. And if you follow that, then, you know, things just come around. I feel like things that we've done um, three, four years ago are paying off right now that I never thought that I've just written them off. Yeah. And probably didn't have an expectation to, for it to, to, to pay off just going out there and helping. Exactly. With that, I mean, there's, you could even draw a, a comparison to how, how software companies grow now. There's a freemium model. You go out there and, and you provide a, a ton of value up front, a ton of knowledge, uh, education before solicitation is something I often say to CEOs who are looking to engage uh, investors in the public markets. With some of that and with the work you're doing with these cutting-edge companies and around the conference, we can talk about customer acquisition, onboarding, retention, uh, viral, virality and network effects. All of these things fit into building a product, building an audience, and ultimately selling, uh, selling that product or service. And in- delivering value and increasing value. Is there any learnings there that you could attach to how to engage investors? Because there's a very close simulation or or, uh, uh, relationship between the two. They're selling a product or selling your shares. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of 
you know, I, I the, the my key advice is don't view anything as transactional. Everything is a long-term journey, especially your investor relationship. It's a marriage. If you think you're like in a marriage with your co-founder, think again once you start raising money. It's a long-term relationship. They're in your board meetings. If you have a cadence of monthly board meetings, then you got to tolerate that every month. If it's a quarterly, you got to tolerate these long quarterly meetings. Uh, Everything is a long game. Don't view anything as a transaction. Yeah, you may want the money and you're desperate for it. And any money, people often say, oh, you know what? Any money is money. Well, if they're, if they're just giving you money and have zero expectations and you can do whatever you want, take it. But if it's going to be a relationship, then you got to view it as that. Don't view anything as, as transactional. That's about the worst thing you can do. And so go and meet people talk to them, see if you culturally align, you have the same values, uh, what a good outcome for them might be. And if it aligns with what a good outcome for you is, and, you know, ask them questions like, Hey, if X, Y, Z had to happen, how would you view it in the, in the sense of, um, what if I had to make X, Y, Z decisions and, and walk through the negative, walk through the, through the positive and then walk through the mediocre and, 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 you know, the best way, I guess, to assess investors is talk to people who they have invested in, uh, sort of like a back channel reference check. But you don't have to do any of that if you just know the investor over years, right? And so spend time building relationships like you, like you do in the community, uh, right? And, and don't just do your, if you want to just work nine to five and, you know, not build, not focus on sort of um, a long-term play, then just do that. But, but like, if your priority is you want to build a big business and uh, you want to build a community, then get to know people, right? Because people will connect you. And as you know, more and more founders uh, and you help out, they're going to connect you with the people they love. And that's going to be way more meaningful than running a transactional process. I hear you on that. And I mean, that's, that's advice that comes uh, or compounds in the sense of, start early and, and build relationships. Don't just look for a check. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Lloyd, I'm looking at time here and want to be respectful of yours, especially on vacation. Uh, between Boast and the companies you work with there and the potential companies there or the Traction Conference and things people could learn from that, do you have any final thoughts that you'd want to share with investors, whether they be public companies or private companies, excuse me, not investors, uh, CEOs, public or private CEOs, any final, final takeaways you'd like to share with them? I think, you know, the key, the key thing I'd like to share is, um, you know, know your why, right? Like, you know, be, uh, have conviction uh, to echo uh, Jeff Lawson from Twilio's uh, keynote from a few years ago is have conviction about the customer you're serving and the product you're building. And then let that be your guide, right? Build a business because I know your why, to what you're doing it. Don't do it to look cool or because startups are cool or uh, to raise money and, and be a hotshot CEO. Do it because you really empathize with your customer and you have conviction about that, uh, about that customer and that journey because it, it, is, it is a journey, right? And then if you do that, then you will build genuine relationships. And, and so for us, that is the three C's, like the colleagues, the customers, and the community. So, you know, find your three C's or your, your values there uh, and build your company to align with those values. 
and everything else will follow. Like focus on building a great business uh, and and solving a pain point that uh, that genuinely empathizes with with the customers you're going after and have conviction about them and the money and funds and everything else just follows i think awesome i hear you on that and thank you very much for uh well for sharing both the tactical and some of the almost philosophical ways you're approaching business and what you're learning from uh, all the companies you've been working with so uh, i really appreciate your time lloyd thank you very much uh, for doing this and uh, look forward to seeing how it turns out have a wonderful uh, rest of the day and if i can help with anything please don't hesitate to reach out i think that's it i'll, I'll put your contact information in the uh, show notes and where people can follow your work really appreciate it thank you very much thanks have a good one bye thanks for listening to this episode of the insider's guide to finance if you enjoyed what you heard please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well you can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.